Hi everyone, David Harris here with you for Criminal Injustice with a bonus for you, our Supreme Court preview of criminal cases for the upcoming term. At the time I'm talking to you, uh, the court has not filled out its entire year's docket. Usually they do that shortly after the term begins and more cases will be added. But we already know that there are some fairly significant criminal cases ready to be heard, and one or two of them actually were heard on the first day of the term. That was October 7th, and so let me run them down for you and give you some idea of what's out there. On October 7th, the court heard two important criminal law cases. The first of these was Kaler versus Kansas. Now, what's going on in Kaler versus Kansas? Well, it's one of the most basic questions there are framed against a very well-known but not very often used defense, the insanity defense. Many people think because of what we see in the great university of television and the movies that the insanity defense is a real common thing. It isn't, actually. Uh, it's not asserted in a lot of cases uh, but it does tend to get asserted in some fairly serious cases. Uh, and it goes to the heart of what we do with criminal law and how we make judgments in criminal law. Most of you probably know that in criminal law, there are two important generic elements that you're usually looking for. One is the, we call it the actus reus. My students will recognize that phrase, uh, the evil action, the bad act, and then the mens rea the bad mind, the guilty mind. What's the state of mind of the suspect, of the defendant? And that may determine very well just how serious a case we are looking at. With that in mind, this case goes right to the heart of those kind of basic concepts. The insanity defense uh, simply says that because of mental illness or disease, the person could not form the requisite uh, mental state that is required to either appreciate the evilness, the wrong of his acts, or understand that what he was doing was wrong. There are many variations on that test, but th that's the basics. What Kansas did was change its law in the following way. It said, no more insanity defense. You cannot raise the insanity defense. We are, this, this state of Kansas, we are abolishing it. It can't be raised anymore. People can raise the defense of not having the mens rea, the mental state required for committing the crime. Those are two very different things. And Kansas says, if you have a problem with mental state in the case, if you're contending that you did not act purposely or you did not act intentionally, that's one thing. And you can say that in court. But you cannot make the argument that because of mental illness or disease, you could not appreciate your actions, know that they were wrong, that sort of thing. That defense is off the table. Kaler wanted to make an insanity defense in a fairly awful murder case, but Kansas law prohibited the use of the insanity defense, and he said that that violated his due process rights. He didn't only want to make an argument about his mens rea, his mental state, purposeful, intentional, or so forth, or maybe he did, that didn't count at all. What he wanted to say was because of mental illness or disease, uh, I should be excused. I should have a defense uh, for this case. And 
So what the Supreme Court will sort out is whether a state can, under the Constitution, deprive somebody of that very basic defense about their mental illness. The argument is based upon the fact, uh, according to Kaler's lawyers, that the idea of a criminal offense must include some level of moral blameworthiness. And when a person is mentally ill, punishing a person with mental illness uh, is simply wrong and violates the Eighth Amendment's guarantee and protection from cruel and unusual punishment. So that's a very different twist than what's been tried in some other cases vis-a-vis the insanity defense. So that was argued on the very first day of the term. We'll know at some point, uh, probably early in the term, I would guess, whether Kansas's effort in a law to abolish the insanity defense and say no one can ever raise it, whether that will stand up next to the Eighth Amendment. The second case that the court heard uh, on that same day, the first day of the term, October 7th, the second case was Ramos versus Louisiana. And this involved the use of non-unanimous jury verdicts in criminal cases. Now, the Sixth Amendment to the Constitution says that juries must be unanimous in convictions. But as many of you probably know, uh, our history... Uh, We have to go all the way back to the enactment of the Bill of Rights and the ratification of the Constitution. Uh, The Constitution's first ten amendments, the Bill of Rights, only applied to the federal government in their original enactment. It's only when we reach the 20th century that we have uh, one and then another and then a third and a fourth piece of the Bill of Rights, pieces of the First Amendment, the Fourth Amendment, the Fifth Amendment, incorporated into the Fourteenth Amendment's guarantee of due process of law. So the Fourteenth Amendment post-Civil War applies to the states, and it says everybody gets due process of law. And that's translated in various Supreme Court decisions into a guarantee of fundamental fairness and having a fair trial, things like that. So the question here really goes to these very fundamental ideas. Shall the Sixth Amendment guarantee about juries be applied to the states? Because it never was uh, uh, included in those pieces of the Bill of Rights that got incorporated into the 14th and therefore applied to the states. Now, it's interesting. This case, Ramos versus Louisiana, Ramos was convicted on a less than unanimous jury verdict. Uh, at the time, there were only two states that allowed criminal convictions based on a less than unanimous verdict. They were Louisiana and Oregon. At the time I am speaking to you, uh, some years have gone by, voters in Louisiana actually changed this by referendum, did away with the idea that you could convict somebody based on a less than unanimous verdict. So one state is left, Oregon, 
not Louisiana, even though this conviction comes out of Louisiana, and that's what's, what the Supreme Court is going to review. Uh, all the pundits I've read about this say they will be very surprised if the Supreme Court does not turn around and say, you know, the Sixth Amendment right on juries, that's incorporated into the 14th Amendment's uh, protection of due process, and therefore uh, all states must have unanimous jury verdicts. Um, uh, because this, the Supreme Court has actually done this fairly recently, first with the Second Amendment cases uh, in which Justice Scalia said the right to bear arms in the Second Amendment is hereby incorporated as against the states. And then more recently, just very recently, in the Tims case, which we talked about here on Criminal Injustice, that's T-I-M-B-S, Tims versus Louisiana, uh, incorporating the Eighth Amendment's excessive fines clause against the states. So I would, if I was a betting person, I would bet that the court will extend that streak and say the Sixth Amendment jury guarantees they apply against the states too, uh, and there will be relief in this case for Mr. Ramos. Also coming up this term, uh, Mathena versus Malvo. Now, if that last name, Malvo, sounds just a little bit familiar to people of a certain age, let me remind you of the story. It was back in the fall of 2002 that the Washington, D.C. metropolitan area was terrorized by a secret, almost invisible sniper that seemed to hold the entire region uh, hostage and uh, 10 people were killed by shooting from some long distance. Uh, and there were two people who were ultimately apprehended uh, for this crime. Um, there was uh, John Muhammad, an adult who has since been executed for it. And then there was Lee Boyd Malvo, who was a juvenile and completely taken in at some level by Muhammad, but he was the actual puller of the trigger. Um, I can remember being in the D.C. area at this time. It was terrifying. It really was. So, like I said, uh, John Muhammad uh, got a death sentence and it's been carried out. Malvo, a juvenile, was sentenced to life without parole. And his sentence is the subject of this case. Uh, criminal injustice listeners may know that life without parole sentences for juveniles have been a subject of a lot of contention in the Supreme Court in the last few years uh, and in lower courts, too. Uh, the Supreme Court ruled on life without parole sentences for juveniles under the Eighth Amendment, saying that that was cruel and unusual when life without parole was mandatory upon conviction, but not when life without parole sentences were discretionary. Uh, and that, that may seem real clear to you and I as we say those words, but it's created all kinds of controversy and argument, and hopefully this case will give the court the opportunity to straighten some of this out and give us a firm and usable definition uh, for states as we go forward. Uh, there are other cases coming up, too. Kansas versus Garcia, that's a case involving immigration and the use of people's Social Security numbers. Don't want to get too far down into the weeds with immigration, but that isn't the only immigration case with some criminal justice issues in it. There are also the DACA cases, Deferred Action for Childhood Arrival, uh, also known as the Dreamers uh, uh, case. Uh, that, of course, was a program set up 
under the Obama administration for people who had arrived as children under a certain age or had arrived without papers, served in the military, and then honorably discharged. Uh, the Trump administration ended that program. Uh, the ending of the program has been tied up in the courts. That is now up at the Supreme Court, and there are criminal justice implications for all of the people involved in that program because if the court sides with the executive branch uh, saying that this program can be abruptly ended the way it was, uh, we're going to have criminal justice issues aplenty for all of the people in the program couple of others for you. We always have some Fourth Amendment cases, some search and seizure cases every term, and one that's already on the docket is Kansas versus Glover. And in that case, the court is going to consider whether it's reasonable for the police to suspect that the registered owner of a vehicle is currently the person driving that vehicle. Now, how would this uh, possibly come up? Well, here's what happened in, in the case of, uh, of Mr. Glover. Uh, a deputy sheriff uh, learned uh, by running uh, a vehicle's plates that the registered owner of a pickup truck that he saw moving down the road, the registered owner had a suspended license because we all know in databases we can tie uh, the vehicle itself to its owner. It's one of the things that the police do when they pull us over is they check us to see if either the vehicle or the driver uh, has anything of note on their record or on their license. Uh, so the police officer learned here that the owner of this truck that he saw had a suspended license. What he didn't know is whether the person driving that truck was, in fact, the owner. Uh, it did turn out that way, but when he stopped the vehicle, and that is the Fourth Amendment intrusion, that's the Fourth Amendment line, pulling the vehicle over is the Fourth Amendment moment, he didn't know who the driver was. So the state of Kansas argued that knowing that that vehicle's owner had a suspended license allowed the police officer to draw the inference that the driver was the owner, even though that wasn't known for sure. Uh, the trial court in the case down in Kansas actually threw out the evidence that was discovered as a result of the stop and the arrest uh, and said that the inference that the registered owner must be the driver uh, was just plain unreasonable. And the case worked its way up to the Kansas Supreme Court, which ultimately affirmed the trial court. Uh, now it's gone up to the Supreme Court. The U.S. government has weighed in in support of the Kansas position that that inference, that the, the, the registered owner is the driver, that that's a reasonable inference. And so that case will be heard by the U.S. Supreme Court, and it will set some new Fourth Amendment precedent. Another case, we almost always have a death penalty case uh, every term, and this term is no exception. We've got McKinney versus Arizona. The justices will address questions there revolving the use and evaluation of mitigating evidence in death penalty cases. Now, what we, uh, what we see in death penalty cases is essentially a, a two-trial system. We have a trial uh, on the issue of 
guilt. And once guilt is decided, if the person is guilty, we then have a, a separate trial, same jury or same judge, uh, but a separate trial uh, on what the penalty should be. And the prosecution gets to present evidence that the death penalty is appropriate, and the defense gets to present and use evidence that it is not. And the defense evidence is what's called mitigating evidence. So we will get some more information and some decision from the Supreme Court on how mitigating evidence can be used in a death penalty case. There are more, uh, but we'll save those for when they are decided. Uh, as usual, it will be an impactful term at the U.S. Supreme Court on issues of criminal law and criminal justice. You can count on us to keep you up to date, give you everything you need to know, give you the perspective you want to have. That's it. I'm David Harris with the News Bonus. We'll be back with you next time. Criminal Injustice is written by David Harris, produced by Josh Rollerson, and supported by listener contributions. Go to patreon.com slash criminalinjustice to become a member and access the premium content feed. Find past episodes, show notes, and more at criminalinjusticepodcast.com. <laughs>